Appalachia. Nobody truly knows where the word comes from, yet everybody has their own opinion of what it represents. Everything from mountaintop beauty and deep forest to meth heads and extreme prejudice. The Appalachian Mountains are the oldest mountains in the world. They once towered 30,000 feet to the air and currently stretch from Canada through 14 states all the way to Louisiana. The inhabitants of these mountains through the many years of their existence have lived through and witnessed downright unbelievable and tormenting historical atrocities. They have lived through everything from hauntings to cryptic creatures that show up and wreak havoc on their homesteads. The worst creature, though, may be man himself. I, being born and raised in these Appalachian Mountains, know that nothing is beyond a pale of belief, no matter how fantastic it sounds. The history that lies in these mountains is rich and has a long legacy of unending tales and adventures. Come with me as I take you on a fantastic journey through these mountains, where things are not always as they seem. I guarantee you it won't be anything like you expected. Hello, I'm Larry Bentley, and this is Season 2 of Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend. How you doing, my good friends? Thank you again for stopping by today. Now, when I was a little fella running in the woods of Virginia, every now and then, we'd uh, come across a hole in the ground or maybe in the side of a rock cliff somewhere, and of course, being curious like we was <clears throat> there was just wasn't any way in the world we wasn't gonna crawl inside and see what was in there heck you never know there might be a pot of gold or a treasure chest full of treasure that somebody might have hid in there i remember one time me and my posse so to speak crawled inside uh, one that opened up so big that we could all stand up all the way up a matter of fact in it Needless to say that we claimed that as our clubhouse, and that's where we had our top-secret meetings from there on in. We didn't know that there were people doing this all over the place, though. Folks call them spelunkers. They like nothing more than to crawl into a hole and see what's down there. Shoot, they go into one of these things just like I might go into walk in the hills, because it brings them the same kind of pleasure. Needless to say... I don't have the stomach for crawling into holes anymore. I guess once I got older, my body knew better and blessed me with claustrophobia. And after finding this story today, I'm thankful for it. Come on in, grab yourself a sit down, and let me tell you one that happened under the Appalachian Mountains for a change. William Floyd Collins, better known as Floyd Collins, was born June 20, 1887 in Logan County, Kentucky, to Lee Collins and Martha Jane Burnett. From an early age, Floyd developed a hobby of exploring caves. If there was a hole to be found somewhere, you'd bet you'd be finding Floyd crawling out of it, or into it. His pastime led to discovery by Floyd of the Crystal Cave in 1997 beneath his far father's farmland. Floyd thought that this cave would be a beautiful place to show other folks. Heck, he bet that he could charge admission and maybe make a living doing just that. So he developed the cave into a tourist attraction that had, as he advertised, unique helictite and gypsum cave formations never before seen by man. 
After all, he had to make it sound good to draw folks in, even though that was the truth. Now, during Floyd's time, cave tourism became a lucrative and very competitive business. There were all kind of aggressive and highly suspicious practices that took place between rival cave owners. This became known as the Cave Wars. Yeah, what are the Cave Wars? Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. You know, rumor has it that we Appalachians will go to war at the drop of a hat and let whoever we have a problem with drop the hat for us. But I suppose it all started in Kentucky Mammoth Cave, which is not only the largest known cave in the world, it has the distinction of being the oldest touring cave as well. Formal guided tours were started there in 1816. It remained in private ownership for the next 125 years and grew into become a prime tourist attraction. And because Mammoth Cave had showed the tremendous profit potential in cave tourism, it incited a cave war in the 1920s when the newfangled automobile became a whole lot more common and folks started going on what they called vacations. Since the Krogan family controlled most of the land in the ridge where the Mammoth Cave was located, and would-be cave tour operators began to focus on properties in the neighboring Flint Ridge, which was separated from the Mammoth Cave Ridge by Houchins Valley. By 1921, a Louisville oil driller named George Morrison forced another opening into Mammoth Cave into the whole system and set up shop in Flint Ridge, advertising the new interest to Mammoth Cave. That did it. Before long, war was on among Colossal Cave, Long Cave, Short Cave, Great Onyx Cave, Indian Cave, Salts Cave, and Floyd's very own Crystal Cave. Mammoth rivals went to dastardly lengths to lure tourists to their underground lairs. They went so far as to place misleading signs along the re <clears throat> roads leading to the cave city, uh, uh, Long Cave City, to Mammoth Cave. They even funneled tourists in with fake policemen, employed stooges to heckle other guided tours, burned down ticket huts, and put out libelous forged documents. And <laughs> it was getting nasty, but so far nobody had been killed. So far. A typical dirty tactic during the early days of automobile travel would be for a representative of the private show cave, or capper as it was called, to leap onto the running board of a passing car and lead the poor surprised passengers to believe that Mammoth Cave was closed. The capper would yell in the window at them and tell them everything from it was quarantined due to disease to it just caved in and wouldn't be any sense going over to Mammoth Cave, but if they're still interested in seeing a cave, they knew where a real good one was. By April 8, 1928, the promise of tourist dollars drove two owners to of adjoining caves to legal blows over property rights in a little case known as Edwards versus Sims. L.P. Edwards had discovered a cave whose entrance was three miles down the road from Mammoth Cave and he discovered it was on his property. He developed it into a tourist attraction called the Great Onyx Cave and went so far as to build a tourist hotel near the cave's entrance. Edwards' neighbor, F.P. Lee, suspected that the part of the cave that was located under his land. So the cave was completely inaccessible to Lee, hundreds of feet below his land, so he sued Mr. Edwards for trespassing. 
Mr. Lee could already see the dollar signs dancing around him. He wouldn't have to do anything to earn it. Mr. Edwards argued that allocating ownership of part of the cave to Mr. Lee constituted an unmerited windfall. Uh, folks, that's a long-winded way of saying that Mr. Lee didn't invest anything, so he shouldn't earn anything. The case dragged on for years, all the way to the Kentucky Court of Appeal. The final ruling in 1936 says the surface owner had rights to the cave below his property, even if the only entrance to the cave was on somebody else's property. Many of the Flint Ridge Caves were later found to be an extension of Mammoth Cave and were eventually brought into the fold when it became a national park in 1926 and opened in 1941. Yes, that's how slow government works. Apparently, the federal government, once again, had underestimated the resourcefulness of the wily Appalachian hillbilly. Even after federal incorporation, the capper for several commercial caves impersonated park rangers and flag travelers right off the road before they could reach the national park. I tell you, you just can't make this stuff up, folks. It went on like this for years and years. Now, it was during this cave war that Floyd found and worked on his cave it, in order to get it up to snuff for tourists. Great Crystal Cave, as Floyd named it, made little to no profit due to its remote location on the Flint Ridge Road. Visitors had to pass so many other caves offering their own spectacular views that by the time they got through all of that, that they were just too uh, wore out and they didn't feel much like putting the extra effort in to ride up to Floyd's cave. Floyd, well, he wasn't about to quit just yet. He knew of another cave that just might work located on the property owned by Beasley Doyle, which was a whole lot closer to where the action was this cave was on known as sand cave and it had prime real estate situated right beside it along cave city road and after all what else would you be calling a road with so many caves on it huh travelers would have to drive right past the sand cave before getting in any of the other caves and that included mammoth cave floyd was gonna cut the legs right out from under all of them so floyd heads over to have a nice sit down with mr beasley Doyle, where they entered into an agreement to explore Sand Cave and split the profits if the cave could be made showable. On January 30th, 1925, with only a single kerosene lantern, Floyd got down and crawled into Sand Cave in a very short order and found it offered challenges to get into. He found himself squeezing through tight passageways. One At one point, he had to squeeze through a passage that was so tight that he had to inch through on his stomach with one arm stretched out over his head, pushing his lantern along as he went, all while keeping the other arm to his side. After making through that tight little hole, the cave began to open up, and Floyd thought that he just may be on to something here. And that's when his lantern suddenly flickered out. Floyd knew that not having light in a cave was about as dangerous as it gets, so even though he didn't want to, he headed back out. As he was squeezing back through that tight little passage we just talked about that he'd had so much trouble with and the first time, his foot kicked loose a 27-pound rock which wedged his ankles right where it was and he couldn't move at all. 
he tried everything that he could even think of but uh, in awkward position he was in couldn't move his foot let alone anything else he was trapped in a solid rock tomb with the one arm by his side and the other one over his head and there he laid now you might think that this is the end of floyd collins but uh, that's just the beginning of the real story it's just getting fired up as floyd laid there he must have thought that he could just wiggle loose and maybe get loose or shimmy out somehow but the 27 pound rock wasn't the only thing that came down on him when that rock came loose there was rubble around it that came loose and it was there that and she finally wasn't going to shimmy anywhere he figured out we're nowhere near done with this one stick around i'll be right back you're listening to Appalachian murder mystery and legend with larry bentley Floyd was stuck. He was going to have to wait and see if anybody remembered that he was going into Sand Cave. Neighbors finally realized that Floyd didn't come out and didn't come home the previous night, so they'd go out looking for him. They find his coat hanging outside Sand Cave and think that he must not have come out, and that wasn't good. They tried to crawl in and look for Floyd, but the cave passageways were so tight that only Jewel Estes, a 17-year-old boy, could make it through. Jewel crawled back far enough to find and start talking to Floyd. That's when they found out that he was hung up. Folks went and got Floyd's family and his brothers, Homer and Marshall. They ran over to join the rescue. They start out by bringing Floyd some food and water. Then Homer started trying to dig Floyd out. That's when he realized just how stuck Floyd was. There wasn't going to be any digging him out. Marshall offered $500 to anybody who could get Floyd out, but... Nobody had any idea how to go about it, so there just wasn't any takers. In fact, the rescue was so chaotic and disorganized that nobody knew what anybody else was doing. I can't say I blame them. Looking back at the time, there just wasn't a whole lot anybody, if there was anybody at all, that had any experience at anything like this, let alone have any specialized tools for such a thing. All most folks could do was to bring Floyd some food and water and try to keep him alive until somebody could think of something to, or some way to get him loose. Most of these folks were too scared to try to squeeze through a tight little opening, so they left the food and water outside, and Floyd didn't get a whole lot of it but because those folks were, or he was inside trying to come up with an idea for a rescue plan. And I never got that communicated to anybody outside either because people were just too scared to go in and listen to it. On the fourth day, February 2nd, things still ain't looking much better. Floyd is looking to be a pretty rough shape. He's cold, numb, and shaking all over. He even lapses into some kind of dizzy stupor like he was drunk. Nobody knew what to make of that. That's when the news broke that a man was trapped in Sand Cave, and reporters started showing up from all across the state. William Skeets Miller, a journalist from the Louisville Courier-Journal, heads up cave city to check out the story when he got there he asked homer about the situation homer says if you want information there's a hole right over there you can go in and find out for yourself so skeets miller crawls down into sand cave to speak to floyd after seeing the situation floyd is in skeets forget about the news story and starts trying to help rescue 
Lieutenant Robert Burden of the Special Police Fire Rescue Team soon got there and attempts to free Floyd by using the harness around his chest to pull him out with a block and tackle. That was too painful for Floyd, so they abandoned that idea. By then, there was about 200 people all gathered outside the cave. Two tents were set up, and one to sell hot coffee and snacks. Of course, a good entrepreneur ain't about to let something like that get away from him, and the others was just for first aid. John Gerald, an old caving buddy of Floyd, shows up and joins in the rescue attempts by once again going in and trying to dig Floyd out. He soon realized, just like Homer, that there wasn't going to be any digging him out. By February 5th, yeah, Floyd's still down there. The governor of Kentucky, William J. Fields, places National Guard Brigadier General Henry Denhart in command of the rescue. Engineer Henry Carmichael supervises the creation of a six-by-six-foot vertical shaft to rescue Floyd to be dug right along the side of the where the hole is, and maybe they could get back there and rescue him. General Denhart states that it is now up to you men to drill through the ground directly to Floyd's side. Spare no expense. The purse strings of Kentucky are open for this. The project got started at 1.30 p.m. Drills, dynamite, power shovels, pneumatic drills. Well, they got ready to use them, but they found out real quick it couldn't be used as they would cause the cave to collapse and kill Floyd. And the only tools allowed were pick and shovel. By February 8th, Floyd's still down there, and he's been down there for eight days, and folks from all over the country had showed up. It looked like a circus was in town. As many as 10,000 people from 20 states were all watching the rescue, hoping to catch a glimpse of Floyd being pulled out. By 1 p.m., the shaft is 23 feet deep, about a third of the way to Floyd, who was about 60 feet down. That's when the newspapers started running all the rescuers into the ground by printing stories that not enough was being done to get poor Floyd out. And as always, not one of them had any better idea of what would be done, and, and which would have been greatly appreciated by Floyd and the rest of them, I'm sure. Uh, they also wrote that the whole thing was a hoax just to get Floyd to come, or people to come to Floyd's cave, and others said that the rescuers were withholding food from Floyd just so he'd die in the cave and make it famous. Of course, nothing could be further from the truth. There were so many rumors being spread through the art of yellow journalism that the military court was convened on February 10th to clear up any suspicions of wrongdoing in the cave. And by the 11th, wouldn't you know it, a snowstorm moved in and dropped temperatures to into the 20s. And slowly the whole process plumbed down to a crawl. By the 12th, the Floyd's still down there, and the shaft is now 43 feet deep, and they're not looking good for Floyd. He hadn't eaten or drinking anything for almost a week. The rescue shaft reaches 52 feet by Friday the 13th, when, with Floyd now being down there for 14 days. On the 14th, as snow stopped, it started raining cats and dogs. With the rescue shaft now 55 feet, the sides were starting to slump inward. Folks, that, that ain't good, I tell you. They decided that they should maybe try digging laterally so that maybe they could get to Floyd faster. 
by then the shaft was, had two feet of water in the bottom of it and had to be pumped out. On the 15th, the crowd was down to about 5,000 people who were all waiting to see Floyd come out. The rescue shaft was within feet of him, and it hadn't been, it won't be long now, shouldn't be, they didn't think anyway. Finally, on the 16th, they broke through the cave passage. They hurriedly found Floyd and learned that they had been too late. Floyd had died. By the sides of the shaft coming more, becoming more dangerous, and by the second, uh, discussion was made about how to get Floyd out, but they decided to, since it was so dangerous, they would just leave him in there for the time being. Floyd had died of explosion and starvation. When spring came and it was safe to do so, folks returned to the sand cave where they finally got Floyd's body out and gave him a proper funeral and burial right in his beloved crystal cave. They really didn't bury him. It was more like setting him in there in the cave. And, of course, still being the entrepreneurs that cave folks were then, they put him in a casket with a viewing window and used him as an attraction. There are actually pictures of him laying in state in his casket during this time. There Floyd stayed for many years until somebody thought that the whole thing was pretty tasteless but weren't quite ready to give up the attraction that Floyd brought to Crystal Cave. And that's when they built him a stone tower memorial and they buried him next to it. There Floyd stayed until a truck driver accidentally bumped into the tower and toppled the whole thing down. They once again dug poor Floyd up and moved him to near the entrance of Crystal Cave with a nice headstone where it remains today. Now you're probably thinking that same thing that I was, that the recovery of Floyd's body had to be a horrific sight after being dead all that time. But, surprisingly, due to the underground temperatures and humidity, Floyd was in a good enough shape to actually have an open casket funeral, and that's when they got the idea of putting him in Crystal Cave with a clear top on his casket. The life of Floyd Collins and the tragic events surrounding his death captivated the entire country and brought many changes to the community of south-central Kentucky, that is, home of Mammoth Cave, which is the, for the most part ended the cave war. Not quite all the way, but for the most part. Don't get me wrong, they're still pretty competitive today, but I don't think you'll see anybody jumping on a moving vehicle and yelling at you through the window. His story would later go on to inspire books such as Trapped, written by Robert K. Murray and Roger W. Brucker, and The Life and Death of Floyd Collins, written by Floyd's brother Homer Collins and John L. Lehrberger. There was one other thing that happened as a result of Floyd's untimely death. His life and death drew the nation's attention to Kentucky cave country and the desire to protect it, eventually leading to the establishment of Mammoth Cave Park, which, as we said, opened in 1941. Hope you enjoyed our story today. If you have, please rate and review the podcast, and don't forget to subscribe, please. If you like even more episodes of this podcast, along with World of Murder, Mystery, and Legend, and the Deviant Report, well, then go over to Anchor.fm or Spotify, and you can join up, get extra episodes for $1.99 a month for all three podcasts. Please join us on Facebook group or Twitter under Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend Podcast, where we can discuss everything Appalachian or whatever else you'd like to talk about. I'll be back soon with another Appalachian Murder, Mystery, or Legend, and I'll see you then.